I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our fourth season, and we're covering Asian American troublemakers. And this episode is on the 2008 documentary, Dirty Hands, The Art and Crimes of David Cho. I don't know about you, but I think when we decided to do a season on Asian American troublemakers, David Cho was pretty high up there on that list. It's almost too easy. Yeah. This one is perfect because it's about a troublemaker. And the film itself seems like it's trying to get itself in a lot of trouble, too. You know what's funny? This is just an aside, but um, my husband, he knows David Cho from like random food TV shows he shows up in. <laughs> yeah, I heard he was recently in the David Chang. Ugly Delicious on Netflix. Yeah. And he was just like, oh yeah, that's the guy who was on Anthony Bourdain, who told Anthony Bourdain to go to Sizzler when he was covering Koreatown. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I was like, you have no idea. So innocent. <laughs> well, what a troublemaker he is. <laughs> I know. I love spray painting. I, I can't get enough of it. It's about fucking graffiti. It's about destroying public property. It's up on the walls, it's everywhere. It's free. I just wanted to destroy shit. I just wanted to like make shit funny. For anyone who was following Asian American cinema at the time, this was just a blast of fresh air. Mostly through its spirit of troublemaking, like Asian American cinema just sometimes feels really stale. Like everyone's just trying to play it safe making these PBS kind of documentaries. And this one just takes a piss all over that format. Yeah, and it's perfect because everything is very visual. I mean, obviously the fact that he's an artist also like a graffiti artist so there's like scenes of him going around town like graffitiing places with his signature whale then also like it feels dangerous right david's genius is somewhat about being a bad boy everything i've ever done in my life that i enjoyed i do it to the extreme his style is the dirty style you know his style is just dirty no one's handed him anything he's worked hard for everything he just did everything to make that happen for himself this documentary follows about seven years of his life from when he was 23 to 30. I mean, you've mentioned that he's a street artist, but he also indulges in breaking the law, not just in terms of like tagging places that he doesn't own, but also committing acts of thievery. We're rich, so I just start stealing. I'm like, why the fuck do these people get to deserve to have all this stuff? Check forgery, and all done with a um, certain glee to it, like... Ah, this is just who I am, and you better get out of my way. And yeah, I know I'm a fuck up, but this is what makes me brilliant. So he's that kind of artist, and the film is directed by his friend Harry Kim, who you can you just feel like they've grown up together and probably committing crimes together. So the filmmaker feels like an accomplice to the crimes and art of David Cho, even as they're being very self-conscious of the fact that he's being observed in a documentary. So I think when you're talking about the film itself feeling dangerous, it's not just presenting a dangerous-seeming artist, but that the film itself seems to have this combustible quality. Like, the filmmakers are going to get busted along with the subject. And also there's just not only, like, crimes against other people, but it feels dangerous to himself as well. You're worried about his mental state. Scenes of him, like, punching himself in the face and using the blood to make artwork. Yeah, it's 
it's kind of a, a mental fragility, but also a physical one. And then because of this masculinist violent tendencies that he has, you also feel for the people around him, like that he could potentially hurt others also. Yes. Everyone from his girlfriend in the film to his friends. He, like There's a section where he talks about how he wanted to kill his best friend. So he was in Japan with his friend. I got on the plane, got arrested in less than 24 hours and spent the next three months in jail. And during that time, he felt like... This guy who was supposed to be one of his best friends completely betrayed him. And he talks about being alone in his cell, fantasizing about how as soon as he gets out, he's going to murder him. And that's what gets him through the day. Right. But when he's talking about this, he's reminiscing about these thoughts that are going to his head. But he doesn't reminisce in a way that's like, man, I was in a fragile state. The way he says it is like, if I have a chance, I will still kill him. Yeah. And so he's sort of on edge. Just like a sense of him being deranged throughout that gives the film a lot of its awesome tension. That makes it so watchable. It makes him such a larger-than-life figure. But it also makes you feel like, by watching this and by like laughing along to his jokes, am I supporting the idea of him? Yeah. And I think the film really invites you to question that. Because it's also about like our relationship with certain kinds of art forms that are potentially exploitative or trashy in a dangerous way, not just like a fun aesthetic way. Yeah, I think when I first watched it in my 20s, and also probably having not seen anything like it before, it feels like a wild roller coaster ride. He's just like pure it. Like any thought he'll express, any desires he'll fulfill. He's kind of like the ultimate troublemaker who gets away with everything. He shoplifted for so long because he got away with it. <laughs> I don't remember if this was in the film or if it was in an interview that I read afterward, but he was like, yeah, I would never pay for trains and airplanes. I would just sneak in on them. <laughs> Clearly like pre-9-11 times. Yeah, and because you also get the sense that he's gotten away with his art that way. I mean, there are scenes in here where he's a struggling up-and-coming artist, but for the bulk of the film, he is beloved already as an artist and can pretty much get whatever he wants as an artist. And I think when the film came out, I think it was around the time when he was starting to get fame for doing things like the Facebook murals. So he was like an instrument of the corporate world too, and he was making millions of dollars that way. So yeah, you don't really feel like he's struggling anymore. So if he is just trying to get away with something, it's because he has a certain amount of liberty and privilege to allow him to do so. It's also like entertaining whatever whims come his way. I love that the film begins with him in a river in the Congo looking for a mysterious famed dinosaur. <laughs> that like he could just say like, yeah, you know what, I'm gonna go look for a dinosaur today. And not only that, it's gonna be paid by other people and they're gonna make a custom made drum backpack for me. So he could do his one-man drum show. Every turn in the film, and there are a lot of turns in this movie, turns to Christianity and to attempts at relationships. Um, but it makes every one of these turns so entertaining. But yeah, there's something about that too that makes this feel like a obnoxious, bro-y vice adventure. Oh, yeah. This macho, juvenile, fratty, but still trying to show that we are about the arts and about culture and about society. Both like the virileness of masculinity, but also its, its inherent interestingness and fragility. Yeah. But I guess there's something fun about seeing that face being an Asian American one. To see someone like David Cho say, you can't contain me in your formula for being a road warrior. I am my own. With people like Shepard Fairey, these like legendary figures of respectable white street art, even he's saying like, man, this David Cho is on a whole other level of crazy. <laughs> That's kind of empowering. Yeah, but I feel like, <laughs> I don't know, I feel like watching it now, it still has like the fun roller coaster ride of it, but I think I think more about like, Kind of the glorification of the addiction, the destruction, the violence. Like, do we for 
forgive all these crimes because he's such a great artist. But then for him too, you know, like by consuming his art, like what are we taking from him? And I guess I just wonder, like, is his art the healthy, less damaging way that he can process his demons? Or were we as his fans just basically encouraging and perpetuating all of his bad behavior? Like, is all just different sides of the same coin? But I think we appreciate it knowing how troubled he is. There are scenes where there are people at his art shows, they're talking about, oh yeah, he spent time in prison. And, and that's why these pictures he drew with like blood and urine in prison is so fascinating. Like, I think part of the mystique of his troublemaking gives his art value, like economic value. Yeah, but I feel like that scene, I was like, oh, this feels terrible <laughs> you know what i mean like because they're all like rich people so being like i can't imagine what it would be like in prison and looking at these naked women he made from his own blood like it's just so fascinating you're just like ugh, but was it? it it's just like weird i think i know what you're getting at because i haven't seen this since since, since like 2012 or something and um it's a lot harder to watch now like i think we live in a different time yeah um i i think our threshold for someone as overtly misogynistic, uh, homophobic, colonialist as David Cho has, yeah, we, we, we can't really deal with that as well anymore. Or we just immediately want to reject it and say like, why are we giving this guy a platform? And so seeing people in the film giving him a platform also makes us feel like the art world that's hoisting him up, that should be under fire here as much as him as an artist. Yeah, I don't think I was asking those questions as much when the film first came out. Yeah, I don't think I was either. But it's not to say that we should just dismiss his art because it's still great art. Yeah, and, yeah, um, and the film does such a great job showing him at work and just him like on the streets tagging a, a wall. And it's so breathtaking. It's miraculous to watch um, how with such few instruments you can create kind of murals of such scale and wonder. So I, it's not to diminish his contributions as an artist and his ability or even my own, my own love for his art. I have like figurines of his whales on my desk at work. Oh, do you really? Yeah. And, and so it's not one of these, like, can we split the artist from the art? Like, to me, these, these things are going hand in hand. And I, I, I know for a fact that, like, part of what makes those whales so cool is because it's tied to criminality. So I'm not trying to say I can divorce those two things. But I think in my mind, I can compartmentalize the ways in which I kind of appreciate him as a, as a certain kind of spirit. And, and also just say, like, well, this is not necessarily behavior that I condone. Well, so for instance, recently on one of his podcasts, he talks about, he's basically suggesting that he raped someone who was giving him a massage. And um, there was a huge outcry over that for good reason. And David Cho then later issued a statement saying, I, I made up that story and this is a part of my art. Like it's, this is part of the performance of his art. And I would rather see that performance expressed through the ambiguities of abstract art rather than him just telling us a story and then telling us it was just art. I mean, I mean, do you, would you rather not see it that way? Which I get. I don't, I, yeah, I don't think I have a simple answer to that. I think there would be a counter argument to what I just said, which is that we should just not even look at his art either. I mean, like, if his wild desires include things like misogyny and homophobia, why even entertain that at all? We should just ignore it. Whereas I think I tend to see it as, you know, those are... These are very human follies that we have, and I'd rather kind of explore how those things get wrapped up in more pleasant desires. I love seeing how these things become embroiled in this kind of visual mess. He captures that so well in his art. I think there's like two things, right? One is like, 
One is like the misogyny, right? I mean, I watched an interview he gave after the controversy, so it's kind of one of those things. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt that just in the same way as in the documentary, he talks about wanting to murder his friend and that he would actually do it. Like that, the the fact that that's the type of storyteller. Yeah, that yeah, he, is. he kind of thrives in hyperbole. Yeah, it's like I think you know there's no dinosaur in, in the Congo, but you were telling the story anyways because you know it's entertaining. So I I do want to believe that he was telling a very exaggerated, stupid story of how he convinced someone to have sex with him. But it does make me not look at his art in the same way. But I feel like the other side of it is sort of, I guess what I was trying to get at before, where the documentary makes him and his mental illness seem really exciting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not faulting the documentary for that, because I think that's the true expression of him. I think his, his art makes his crimes and his insanity palatable in a way. You know, like it's the kind of perfect expression of all the chaos, right? It's the most beautiful expression of all the chaos, right? But I think the idea of like, oh, like all of his troubles makes the art better. Like, I feel like nowadays I have more mixed feelings about that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, if he was still doing the same types of things and kind of living these same cycles, there is a part of me that would say, I don't need it. Which is not to say that he shouldn't make it or that other people don't need it, but I mean... Yeah, I guess I kind of feel like the girlfriend in the film when she's like, look, I mean, I know you're a genius, but there's a lot of other people that are special in the world, too. My girlfriend lives a righteous life. She ends up in a brand new home. I sleaze and slime my way through life, and I end up in a cell. It was really like I was getting caught for like my lifetime of you know everything that happened. I have to unlearn like my whole life. There's like that moment where he's like, if I was an alcoholic, then I could go to AA. If I was a drug addict, I'd just go to rehab. But is there like a place for like chronic masturbators who shoplift? And then she's just like, is there a support group for like badass, hot, responsible women who make money, but for some reason have these shitty artist boyfriends? (laughs) I know, that's so funny. (laughs) There's a part in the film where Harry is filming... David and his girlfriend and the girlfriend looks at Harry and says you're not filming this are you and Harry says no I'm not which is by all accounts a huge violation of documentary ethics so these are moments where you feel like this is idea that the spirit of stealing footage stealing scenes stealing um intimate moments that we shouldn't have access to that is akin to glorifying David's stealing of things in stores this film is is such a great container for all the art on his canvas as well as art in the way he lives his life that he could possibly expect from anywhere circa 2008. And for that, I think it's such a kind of a beautiful act of friendship that Harry provides for him throughout these years of filming him. And it's also like, it's one of the best films about an artist to watch an artist that I've ever seen. The scenes where you watch the physical difficulty of like laying out paints on walls in the middle of the night across Los Angeles like just that of itself is such a it's it's so fascinating and cinematic i'm so grateful this film exists so that we were able to witness it as well as him punching himself in the nose so he can paint with his blood the older (laughs) women in me watching it now just like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) whereas i'm the 30 something guy thinking oh man i wish i could still do stuff like that (laughs) yeah i guess we should this is like over 10 years ago so He's probably had a lot of growth and ungrowth since then. And it's kind of like the anti-documentary where, you know, there's a big revelation. I like the parts of the film where 
he finds God and and then like he's just back to his original self. David discovers God the same way he discovers a dinosaur in the Congo. Like it's just a whimsical thing that that potentially can help him out and help him like see the world differently. But do we really think he's transformed? The jury's out. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our new website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com, where you can find lecture notes and links to all the films we covered. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And our podcast handle is Wake Up Set School. Next week, your assignment is to watch the 1997 film Strawberry Fields by Rhea Tajiri and the 2006 film Punching at the Sun by Tanuj Chopra. We'll be looking at troublemaking in a very teen angst kind of way. Class dismissed. Hey, so I know we skipped school last week. So if you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, we'd encourage you to check out Minji Chang's podcast. First of all, this week's episode is with director So Young Um, who made a short documentary called Liquor Store Babies. And they bond over being Korean immigrant children who grew up in liquor stores and laundromats and all that good stuff. So check it out and check out some of the other podcasts from the Potluck Podcast Collective. See you next week.